2: Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
3: Hello guys and girls, the program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J.
0: Hi, guys. This is Dr. Santosh, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher.
3: Now, normally, Santosh and I like to cover people medicine.
0: (laughs) Not all the time, though. We've done a lot of non-people medicine.
3: It's true, because I love animals. So much so that I adopted a dog this year.
0: And robots, but he hasn't adopted one of those no, yet.
3: No, I would never adopt a robot. <laughs> I just, mm-mm.
0: I'm waiting for the time that a robot adopts you. <laughs>
3: that said, this week I figured we would take a little bit more of a deep dive on animals and talk with a vet. And somebody who is close enough to know all the training and maybe even a little of the history. Santosh, why don't you introduce this week's guest?
0: Yeah, I'd love to introduce Dr. Andrea Spediaci, a recent graduate of the wonderful University of California at Davis, where she earned her DVM, and she is very much a person after my own heart. Clinician, yes, but also very, very interested in pathology and research. She studied toxicology and effects of secondhand smoke. So I'm very, very happy to uh, welcome
1: Dr. Spidiaci Thank you for having me.
3: Before we get into the actual questions we're going to shoot at you, are you familiar with how... Your field first began, like the secret superhero origins of veterinary medicine? So
1: unfortunately, I am not. So I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say. Maybe you can fill me in.
0: I'm guessing because people were really interested either in human stuff or non-human stuff. So I'm guessing that people who are doing anatomy and physiology were probably trying to figure out something like oh this is how the animal world works
3: to answer your question santosh we're gonna have to go all the way back to ancient egypt
0: oh my (laughs) gosh are we gonna be okay
3: so we'll jump in our way back machine (laughs) and head to uh, the town of kahun or lahun which was not really like a general population town it was more a temporary site for workers building the nearby pyramid. It was essentially the construction dorm or trailer park for a pyramid.
0: This is the common misconception that you had lots and lots of slaves or something building the pyramid where there were for sure, but there were also subjects like just citizens of Egypt who would have their own dormitories while they were being driven to death all day.
3: (laughs) This town left behind a set of papyri. Papyruses? Thank you. Like platypuses. Yeah. (laughs) That date back to around 1900 BC, which they go by the Petrie Papyri or the Lahoon Papyri. And among the medical texts is one on veterinary medicine. So one of the very first documented texts that covers details like cattle diseases and their treatment, as well as a few diseases for dogs, birds, and fish, mostly on afflictions that concern the animal's eyes, as well as a whole section of the scroll is just dedicated to OB-GYN uh, veterinary stuff.
0: Oh, like husbandry.
3: Whatever you want to call it, my friend. (laughs) So let's start there before we continue walking through uh, the ancient days of veterinary medicine. What are some of the most common ailments that you tended to see on your rotations or that vets see in general? Is it still eye things? And of course, I know there's a, a dichotomy between... Small animals, like dogs, cats, fish, birds, and Mm -hmm. large animals, not those things.
1: (laughs) So I would say uh, small animals, sure, you get your eye accidentally popping out or some sort of scratch in the eye. Um, But I would say that way more commonly are ailments of the intestinal tract. So animals coming in that are throwing up or that have diarrhea or something of that nature. And it's usually due to something that they ate. So for example, I have a black Labrador and she eats anything that she can find. So um, (laughs) there have been instances where I need to bring her in, especially if one eats, say, a sock that gets stuck in the intestinal tract and then you need some veterinarian to help you out in that case. In the current era that are very common, improper eliminations. So a lot of cats that might be peeing outside the litter box or a dog that has been house trained for, you know, five years and then suddenly is going to the bathroom in the house. We see a lot is, um, especially seasonally, is uh, people that bring their dogs in because they're very itchy, either in the skin, on the stomach, or um, in the ears. We also get a lot of kind of minor injuries, I would say. So people that bring their dogs to the dog park, and either it gets scratched or it gets bitten. Um, But it's not a major injury. It's more like something that needs to come in, get cleaned out, get disinfected, maybe get a couple stitches, and then kind of Gives, given some pain meds, and then gets to go home. And then the last thing I think is the most common um, is what I would just call lumps and bumps. And I feel like that's a good small animal and large animal issue. And those can be so many different things. So uh, if you have an outdoor cat that comes in with a cat bite abscess, or a dog that lives in California that likes to run through grassy fields and gets a lot of foxtails. Those can become an abscess. Um, and then of course you have the more sad and scary cancerous kind of lumps types of things too. I say those are pretty much the, the big ones that come in. I love this. Sure.
0: This converges so well with pediatrics because there's not oh. too much different from like a really smart dog And a small child
3: I have been saying this for years Both of your fields are concerned With making sure you're up to date on shots Yes No. And you have to watch out You talk You talk mostly to the owners Because you don't get a lot of history from the patients Mm -hmm. And you have to avoid Very carefully being
1: bitten (laughs) Yes It's true
0: But okay Uh, not you know joshing around you crazy but uh but yeah the 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 umbrella of diseases that mostly affect both children up to a certain age and animals is infectious diseases respiratory Mm -hmm. skin and soft tissue Mm -hmm. gastrointestinal and then trauma so it makes a ton of sense and i absolutely love the crossover
3: as most of our listening audience is aware I do love my etymology and word origins. So let's talk very briefly about where the term veterinarian came from. Are you familiar with Hammurabi?
0: Dude with the code. I've
1: heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I feel like I've heard the name.
0: <laughs> so so in, in Western society, at least, one of the forerunners of what we think of as modern laws.
3: Created one of the first sets of laws, and among them, he discussed animal welfare, treatment, and care services, and had to come up with a bunch of glossary terms that basically began veterinary medicine documentation. Think of it as ICD-10 codes for animals, like but ancient ones. (laughs) That's how long they've been around. The 500 BC, you've had ICD-1. So this was
0: ICD-1, right? Okay, gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) 1.0.
3: The different types of vets at that time were identified according to the animal they treated. So Hippiatroi were doctors that treated horses. My favorite, Muleomedicus, were doctors treating mules. Or medicus pecuarius were doctors that treated the remaining livestock, goats, pigs, chickens. Uh, But the overall umbrella term for labor, such such as mules, horses, and donkeys, was collectively beasts of burden. And the Latin for that is veterinarius. And it is thought that this collection of individuals who treated all these beasts of burden became known as veterinarians. Cool.
1: It's interesting that there was a whole specialty on mules.
3: <laughs> right?
1: They're just like this small category. <laughs> I well I guess it
0: it makes sense that those early veterinarians and the people who are concerned with them are going to focus on those things, those animals that are directly impactful and helpful in current human society for their time i
1: think that there would be just as much emphasis on food animals of the time so it's just interesting to me that they would separate mules and
3: i mean, oh, those those were the peculiar ones the pecuarius was the livestock or maybe just cattle took up too much grazing and there wasn't enough in uh, wherever Hammurabi no, I and guess, them were living. I, I <laughs> guess
0: it could make sense, though, that you lump together goats and cattle. These are all things that give you milk. You slaughter them for meat. Uh, and mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. for a person in Hammurabi's time, probably in terms of diseases and physiology and anatomy, mm. uh, close enough so now we're getting a little bit like you're lumping too much into one spot because now you've got
3: okay well you have to figure what livestock was available or existed at that time
1: i guess my question is more less lumping all livestock together and more why did they separate mules and horses
3: maybe they were used for carrying uh things where horses were probably more messengers or racing Uh,
0: oh i see i see
3: i see like motorcycle versus minivan. <laughs> all
1: right, all right.
3: Andrea, at one point you were thinking about becoming a mule medicus or a hippie-a-troy, right? Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to be able to bring, bring up those words again. But uh, you mentioned that one of your specialties is, or one of the things that you're interested in, is mm-hmm. large animal medicine.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So what kind of special interests are involved with large animals?
1: I did most of my large animal medicine working with cattle and and small ruminants, so sheep and goats. Um, and if I had my way, that's who I would work with. I did a little bit of pigs, um, but I preferred, I think goats were my absolute favorite. A little bit of poultry medicine, which is not really large animal but is looped into the large animal kind oh, of okay. category you know most of my clinical work is um you know inpatient internal medicine with those animals who were mainly either meat production or um, dairy
0: you're either keeping them alive and healthy in order to produce milk or you're keeping them healthy enough okay. to get slaughtered oh it's just kind of heartbreaking
1: i mean there is a whole subset of well even cattle um uh show oh. animals so like very high end or you know high pedigree oh
3: my God. the Lamborghini what? of chickens. <laughs> the Bentley of chickens. <laughs> yeah there you go.
1: Uh, <laughs> I love that. So actually last year we went to the California State Fair and so the UC Davis program is very much involved with coordinating all of the people that come into the fair and Um, That was a really, really fun time in my clinics.
3: Are county fairs pretty big business for vets?
1: If you are looking to make more money in the veterinary field, you probably want to err on the side of small animals and potentially going into like a specialty. Most people that go into veterinary medicine are not doing it for the (laughs) issue. In fact, I would say like 99.9% <laughs> are not doing it for Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> so, I, well, I'm sure there's, you know, because, you know, Josh and I, you know, we got into this, we're, we're kind of a little bit in the trenches and I'm on the academic side and, mm-hmm. you know, he's working hard seeing patients, mm-hmm. but we definitely have in human medicine, the, you know, I'm going to make my own brand name cream. And inject Botox mm. and just watch it roll in. Or even um. for like high performance humans, <laughs> uh, you know, you can be a sports medicine mm-hmm. doctor and be the most famous sports medicine mm-hmm. doc of, you know, <laughs> and all
1: that kind of thing. So I'm sure there's <laughs> got to yeah. be
0: some. Yep. Breeding a horse for like the, what's the Kentucky Derby or something? Like those vets have got to be like.
1: I mean, the people that are breeding the horses are the ones making the income. Oh, not the horse time. doctors. So it's not really. Oh right. So I'm sure they make a salary, but it's not like if their patient wins, they get any <laughs> of no. the no. Josh, Josh right?
0: Could you imagine if we raced our patient? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh-huh,
2: uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Yes, yes.
0: Uh-huh. Josh. Josh, did you <laughs> did you set up wheelchair racing in your ICU in Chicago?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on. <laughs> I mean, I guess I should. Submit- Flavor that I don't really know about the resource yeah. <laughs> industry, but that's what
0: I've No, heard. no, no. <laughs> well, the, the thing that I was thinking of as a for instance is if you become a famous sports medicine physician, then a, um, a franchise, for instance, like out here, the L.A. Rams, will come out and you'll be their official doctor or official hospital or whatever it is. And then there's like it's mm-hmm. it is a salary, just like you said, but it's, you know, it's definitely Mm. high salary and then people like individuals who are um high performance athletes and that kind of a thing will come seek you out for specific things i was Mm. curious if there was something like that in veterinary medicine but
1: um i don't really think so i mean i'm sure there are famous you know because now with the advent of a lot of vet shows on tv and such perhaps Those people are getting sponsorships or um, an increased caseload because people Mm -hmm. see them on TV. I'm not sure if there's like a a stadium veterinarian or if each horse comes with their own vet. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then also, it's just, you know, horse racing makes $2.00. Pro football oh, sure. players Millions. make $2 million. So, you know, there's a big disparity sure. in there too. It's, that's just my thought process. I don't really
3: know. Can you imagine if like Wrigley Field had its own <laughs> doc, Just like individually. He's like, I only treat yeah, people. <laughs> the people yeah. who get injured here.
0: Oh, that would be funny.
3: But I'm glad you guys brought up cattle and horses earlier because that's actually how we got the very first veterinary school. Uh so in seventeen sixty-one, King Louis the fifteenth wanted to prevent cattle disease, and that meant he had to protect grazing land and train farmers what to do, like a public education campaign. On recommendation from the administrator of Lyon, he got Claude I'm gonna mispronounce this, Bourgolo, <laughs> Borgolo, Borgolot.
0: Probably Bourgelot.
3: A master horseman uh came with an order from King Louis XV's Royal Council of of State that founded the very first veterinary school. So it was meant to just train people to take care of the horses, cattle, livestock. And it was specifically created for them to learn how to treat livestock diseases. And in only six months after the school opened, he published like a compendium of results, the very first disease disease (laughs) Wikipedia,
0: Yeah, or encyclopedia, probably. I don't know if other people were allowed to
3: contribute. It was a collection of case studies and tests achieved by his students fighting rinderpest and various zoonoses in the area, and he made the claim that similar results would be obtained wherever his brand or wherever veterinary medicine was practiced.
0: So I'm guessing at this time it wasn't, you know, the, the information wasn't fully standardized. Like there were still a lot of doctors kind of doing their own thing, So you'd have to be a little bit careful where your teaching came from. Otherwise, it would just be like very niche.
3: Even though he really wanted this veterinary school to take place, the only requirement for admission to the new school, he was pretty Mm -hmm. welcoming. The ability to read and write. Nice. So there was no age limit. So in 1762, you know, the second class, admitting class, an 11-year-old child was in the same class as a (laughs) 35-year-old man. Oh,
0: but I mean, well, maybe not that far apart, but we we've definitely known people in med school and vet school. I'm sure that, you know,
3: (laughs) Okay, even more interestingly, Borgolo dismissed all of those who already had scientific training as doctors. He, you know, he didn't want anybody who knew anything about medicine to begin with because he feared they would quickly give up veterinary medicine to devote themselves to the much more lucrative human medicine and (laughs) surgery. Well but I'm
0: wondering how much
3: She's like I can't have doctors. Well yeah because
0: around (laughs) this time, Louis the Fourteenth, Louis the Fifteenth, you it was a great honor and you prescribed Physic. You, you know, we were on the cusp of alchemy coming into chemistry, and you could make up solutions and stuff like that. Whereas it seems like the veterinary medicine was very empirically based.
3: It mostly was done because there was this huge plague of rinderpest in the 1700s. And
1: it was. Some sort of GI.
3: It was known as the cattle plague.
1: Oh, it's a
0: morbillivirus. This was ew. this
1: was measles
3: for cows. Well, only even-toed cows.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a morbillivirus, <laughs> and uh, that's the current morbillivirus for humans is measles. So yeah, this was. I'm not quite sure what kind of symptoms and those kind of things would would happen to these poor I animals, but. I'm guessing they didn't get rashes and stuff. So I'm just reading right off of Wikipedia. It says fever, loss of appetite, nasal and eye discharges, and then irregular erosions on the mouth, lining of the nose and the genital tract, acute diarrhea preceded by constipation, And then most animals die six to 12 days after the onset of these clinical signs. Poor things.
3: The last confirmed case was diagnosed in 2001. So it's not like this has been gone for (laughs) ages.
0: Yeah, and and in public health, when we say it's eradicated, we still may see an occasional case here and there, you know, but it's exceedingly rare, so...
3: Yeah. And I like the little Wikipedia conspiracy theory that says the measles virus in humans may have evolved from this (laughs) Rinderpest zoonosis.
0: There's a possibility more than likely that those two viruses share a common ancestor.
3: Cattle measles led to the founding of veterinary medicine school. So the original class was 38 students that lasted and graduated in 1762. And yes, that 11 year old was one of them. Yeah, I'm sorry. By the time me. it was done, yeah. Uh, now, <laughs> now, the way their their education was structured was as follows. They arrived throughout the year, you know, in between farming cycles and other things, because he knew who he was preaching to. You know, these are going to go out and educate farmers. They're also living that farmer life. So throughout the year, they took theoretical courses in three classes. The study of external parts, so osteology, the study of bones, mycology, the second was that alchemy, materia medica, and my favorite word of the day, splanchnology, <laughs> Uh which yeah. we'll get. I'll come back to that. And bandage and bandaging. So materia medica, splanchnology, and bandaging. The third was physiology, medicine, pharmacology. You know all the things we associate, or at least on this show, we associate with human medicine. And starting a year after that class graduated in 1763, during another major plague in France, he taught his best students everything they needed to know to go out and fight the plague. So he was the cow CDC. This was a major concern. And the techniques Mm. he taught and the data he collected did end up getting spread throughout Europe. But yeah, this... He was going out and doing the cow CDC or WHO thing. Andrea, does this sound similar to some of your training? <laughs> I mean, aside from aside from being trained up to – well, actually, being trained up to treat a plague. You know, we can talk about that as well. But how similar was this original model to uh, – to your training?
1: Well, we definitely didn't have 11 year olds in our class. (laughs) Definitely had to have a bachelor's degree to get in. We basically have a four year program. Um, Our first two years are mainly concentrated on the basic sciences. So a lot of anatomy, physiology, learning the different body systems, a lot of cellular biology, infectious diseases, public health, things like that. So there's a little overlap, I guess. Third year is made up of all of our medicine, really. So um, diseases, pathologies, pathophysiology, treatment, diagnoses, clinical symptoms, all that kind of fun stuff. And then our fourth year is when we go out and um, we work in the clinic. And that's when we start taking cases and um, seeing patients and being doctors um, so we definitely have a little more than a year's worth of time and we all start in august and we all end in may or september whenever we're you know our finish line is i think it's a little more concentrated on specific animals and treating specific animals versus such a large um, emphasis on herd health which is sounds like the original veterinary science was all about
3: I also love the term splanchnology which is the study of viscera and just internal organs if you, it's only the things it's only the things if you wank them they splanch all over the place
0: (laughs) no, 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 no (laughs) (laughs)
1: splanchnic
3: (laughs) oh, for the love of God that's (laughs) the splanchiest of all
0: no, splanchnic (laughs) is all of the viscera so basically everything contained in the thoraco-abdominal cavity. So it's internal medicine.
3: You know the golden, the golden girls of our internal organs: Dorothy, (laughs) Rose, Splanch.
0: Could you? It's splank, splanknik. I know you know that too because you studied the splanknik artery and the splanknik nerve. um,
3: Now, were you given any training, Andrea, on? treating an epidemic? Because animal pandemics or epidemics Mm -hmm. are much more common in general than human ones, right? At least Mm -hmm. when dealing with herds.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were, we were, you know, a month or so on public health and infectious disease breakouts and things like that. I think a lot of the large animal medicine, in terms of cattle and ruminants, not the horse side of things, is really all about herd health. And treating the whole herd and not necessarily individual animals. Um, But on the small animal side of things, um, a lot of shelter medicine classes and um, things you learn while rotating through shelter medicine had a lot to do with treating the whole building, treating an infection that comes in from one cat that comes in from the outside and then transfers to every other cat or every other dog. Um, And how to disinfect and um, treat those kind of situations. So,
0: this is the crossover between individual medicine that we see in, uh, you know, even myself in infectious diseases versus treating uh, public health and and looking out for the common good. And often there's a strong overlap, but I know there are some times where that can conflict from an ethical standpoint, probably with animals, you know, it could be because oh that particular animal's disease. So rather than trying to treat them or anything like that, you know, we have to put them down to, in order to take them out of the population
1: Mm -hmm. spreading
0: the disease so that that must be
1: really tough Mm -hmm. it depends on circumstances so you're a lot less likely to do that in small animal medicine than you are in food animal medicine and even in food animal you know it's there's a lot of different circumstances and it's usually dependent on a conversation between the veterinarian and the farm owner or the owner of that individual animal um kind of what can be done and then um, obviously, if it's something that is reportable, then we're required to contact the you know public health authorities through the state, um, usually through the state. I don't know if there's a reporting huh. for the USDA as well, maybe, probably. It just kind of depends on what the disease is. Um, How long the animal has been ill, how much the animal has been in contact with other animals, because, you know, you do have situations where, let's say you have a prized bull that is housed by himself. The
0: analogy in kind of human medicine is you have an individual illness. All right. How much does it affect the individual patient versus how much are they a risk to public health? where they have to be reported to our branches of things. Yeah. So it would be, for instance, local public health or to the CDC. So I, I completely understand because from our standpoint, then it's actually kind of personal autonomy for the patient or their privacy. Um, and it could affect things mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. their work and their lives, because if their identity is ever made public right. from our point of view, then it could really, you know, put a stain on their lives, mm-hmm. even while we're trying to help them and the community around them. So I I understand the balance that you have to hit. It's a hundred percent like one-on-one analogy.
3: Mm-hmm. We're kind of now used to the idea that when you go to the vet, you're going to see a small animal vet, I guess, unless like, you live in a rural area. Mm-hmm. But as we mentioned, the whole concept of founding a veterinary school was for horses and cattle diseases. Do you want to hazard a guess as to when that shift finally began?
1: Ooh, I'm going to go with like
0: 1950s, 60s. I, I don't know too much about who would really get into cat medicine, you know, because cats. But dogs have been loyal companions for a really, really long time. And I imagine to some degree, if you're trying to protect your livestock, you'd really have to make sure and know that your dogs are okay. That being said, there's quite a few cat diseases that pass on to humans. So I'd go earlier. I'd say you had your small animal disease in like the 1700s or the the large animal diseases. So let's say even like, I don't know, like the 1830s for small animals.
3: It ended up being around World War II, 1938 to 1944-ish. And that's because before the automobile and industrial revolution, the main role for vets oh, uh, was in the treatment of horses. Shit. They were mechanics. I mean, if your <laughs> carriage went from two to one horsepower, that was a pretty yeah. significant change. All
0: throughout World War One, World War Two, I know.
3: So as the number of horses began to decline because people were becoming more industrialized, the British government suggested vets should specialize in the treatment of farm animals. And the change from farm animals to small animals is basically the same reason that there was a whole rush on the shelters and pet stores Mm. during the pandemic. There was during the second world war when people are on any kind of lockdown or not traveling anywhere, they're looking for companion animals. So the number of dogs, cats, rabbits, Guinea pigs uh, that were owned by individuals in Britain and elsewhere skyrocketed around that time. And with that came a need for doctors familiar with animal physiology and ability to treat them. And one of the major people involved in this was one woman in particular, Maria Dickens. She founded the People's Dispensary for Sick Animals of the Poor. She had no previous experience of looking after animals, just wanted them to receive care, and had a sign outside her window that said, bring your sick animals, don't let them suffer, all animals treated, all treatment free. And
2: She's the reason for
3: the rise of animal charities, which ended up funding uh, veterinary schools throughout Europe, again, based on this earlier model. And helping to fund the new wave of vets to treat small animals based in concurrence with her charity. But
0: she had to have received patronage from somewhere, right? Because otherwise, it would take a certain amount of funds in order to, you know, care for these. You'd need to get equipment, and you'd probably need people,
3: so... I believe she got a golden ticket to a chocolate factory.
0: (laughs) You can't fix animals with chocolate. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's the opposite.
3: In the war effort as well. There's actually a medal named after her for animal heroism. Although her work depended a lot more on amateur volunteers than trained veterinarians. And the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons wasn't a huge fan of hers. They listed her as dangerous. Uh, So they wanted her, they said, go to school get the training, don't just adopt animals. And she said, sure. but you won't treat anyone unless oh, they can pay. So
0: she, she had a real moral argument against what was being purported at that time.
3: We've learned a lot about how similar some of your training is. Now, do you do a residency post-train like we do in medicine? You
1: can do, um, it depends on if you want to specialize or if you want to be a general practitioner so a general practitioner can graduate and then can do a year long internship if they want to or they can go directly into practice. Um it depends on what your comfort level is and what you you know what your background is and what practice you go into. Um You can also do a internship and then go into a specialty program. So a specialty residency. Um, So it kind of just depends on what your particular specialty.
0: If you want to be a lab scientist, so you understand the clinical side of things, but you want to Mm -hmm. both develop and interpret Mm -hmm. the the tests that are sent to you. So the blood tests and the PATH tests that the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, tissue and all that fun stuff
1: you can go into straight you know research with a company in which case you can try to get a job right after you graduate or you can go on to do a master's or a phd to be a little more qualified for those roles um you could also do lab animal medicine is actually oh, a specialty so within veterinary taking care of medicine. our so you Our can, little
0: uh, sacrificial animals yes. who are working so hard to teach us stuff in in largely human medicine.
3: Yeah, well, Santos no. <laughs> doesn't. Santos doesn't need well, witnesses. Try.
1: <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so those are specialty trained veterinarians that go do a. I'm not sure if it's a two or three year residency. Um, that then graduate and pass a different board certification and uh, go into that line of work.
0: Over here, we call it comparative medicine because we are literally comparing the animal model to usually human disease. These are fully trained vets and Mm -hmm. vet techs who care for the animals who Mm. are used to kind of model various systems of human disease so that we can learn about those diseases over here Mm -hmm. so we're a bit more diverse than other programs that i've been to including over at ucla we do have mice which is by far the most common model even though it's probably not the best for most human diseases but we have uh, large animals here as well so including pigs and dogs Uh, the dogs are actually used for diabetes research over Mm -hmm. here because they seem to have the Kind of the closest physiological responses to things like obesity and high blood sugar and that kind of thing.
3: And that's an excellent point, Santosh. Is animal obesity oh. <laughs> a big problem now? I know certainly as as the Western diet has shifted, uh, human obesity has been on the rise. But mm-hmm. is that reflected in our pets?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that it's definitely increased in cases. Um, And I don't necessarily, you know, it's not because dogs (laughs) are going to McDonald's every day to get their meals. Um, It's more from, you know, free feeding animals or too many treats or just, you know, honestly, it's it's more about just making sure you know what to look for in your animal. So making sure they have that nice baseline and they, they don't look like a sausage Um, so to me, that, that boils down more to informing your clients of what, um, should be a realistic weight on their animals. Um, but they, you know, they do have the same incidents where, you know, as humans get older, it gets a little harder to lose weight and it gets, you know, You can eat the same amount and gain weight now versus when you were younger. And the same thing happens to animals, you know. So you might have to, like, back off on the food a little bit as they get older or, you know, cut down on the fat, cut down on the treats, that sort of fun (laughs) stuff that everyone loves to think about.
3: (laughs) So let's let's talk maybe about some of these just basic pet safety things. Like, how do you identify, certainly those of us who live in – in parts of the world with seasons i have to deal with a few well, i'm sorry you know california has construction <laughs> traffic and fire tornadoes <laughs> but but how do you identify if your pets are too hot or too cold like you know when you're out walking your dog in 110 degrees in california during fire tornado season or trying to take them for a walk Around the block mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. Snowpocalypse or whatever we get this year. How do you know when you should bring your? What are signs you can use to identify to bring your animal back indoors? They've been um, out too long.
1: So um, the first thing, if you if you want to take your dog, let's say for a walk, and it's noon in 110 degrees or even 100 degrees for that matter, the best thing you can do is walk outside, put your hand on the sidewalk. If it's too hot for your pan it's too hot for their paws because they're gonna want to go out no matter (laughs) what because it's a walkie who doesn't want to go for a walk so you have to be the brave one that says no it's too hot not to mention i would never recommend going out at noon in 100 degree heat for anyone people or animal but some signs of like heat stress can include you know panting really hard um, drooling, if they seem to really be breathing hard, um, if it gets really bad, they can, you know, show some sort of like GI signs like vomiting or diarrhea, just kind of like heat stroke in humans. If it gets really bad, they can lose coordination, they can collapse. Um, so definitely don't want to get that far. Um, I would say if you, with my dog, so I have a black Labrador who is very quick to rise in heat. And so as soon as I notice her panting really hard, we go inside and I immediately put like a a wet, like a cold or a cool, not cold, um, Mm -hmm. wash rag kind of under her armpits, um, just to help cool her down. Um, if you notice that, you know, your animal is obviously, very, very hot. If you've noticed any of the GI signs, I really recommend just taking them to the vet because there are things there that they can do such as, you know, giving IV fluids if they're really dehydrated or, you know, checking their vital signs, checking their blood parameters that you obviously can't do at home. And you want to make sure that you're cooling the animal down in a safe and controlled manner. You don't want to go from really hot to really cold in a really short amount of time so that's best left to people that have been doing it for a long time and know uh, how to that do it that makes sense because
0: for um, for heat stroke and heat exhaustion of- for us we do have to do things like placing a Foley catheter or you know, putting in an IV and actually pumping in mm. cold fluids, uh, either washing mm-hmm. out the bladder or into the bloodstream. Yeah. So that and that definitely takes a decent amount of technical skill. While we're monitoring the patient to make sure we're not putting them into something mm-hmm. like frostbite.
1: It's really important too to not, you know, put them in an ice bath. It's it's better to put them in a cool bath and maybe run a fan on them. To make sure that you're not again not going from really hot to really cold in a in a short amount of time. And then I think it's also important to remember that even if your animal looks okay afterwards, there's still a lot of sequelae that can come after having gone through mm-hmm. some sort of heat adverse event. That can kind of come down the line. So it's really important to get those blood parameters so that you can monitor and make sure, even if the dog looks okay, they might not be. So you want to be able to take those actions just in case of that scenario, if that makes sense.
3: Okay. And what about for cold weather? You know, how do you identify if your dog is maybe <laughs> in need of a jacket or what's happening? Or if salt is bad for their paws, because people walk Mm. their cats as well. But, you know, are you, Mm. do you do booties? Do you do foot wax? You know, how do you prepare an animal for cold weather?
1: I have seen people use like little snow booties on their dogs. And um, I um, I think it's important to remember that you also want to train your dog to kind of accept the booties because... Otherwise, they're just going (laughs) to rip them off. Like, let's be honest. Um, So, but things you can look out for are, um, you know, really an increase in shivering, kind of a hunched position. You know, they're trying to like conserve all of their core heat. Um, If they look like they're having trouble breathing or they have kind of a lowered heart rate, kind of the same thing as with heat stroke, you want to warm them gradually, Um, with blanket warm water bottle safely bring them to your veterinarian because again we can give them IV fluids that have been warmed a little bit so they can they're able to to warm the animal both inside and out and that's really what you want to be aiming for
3: and one of the things I don't think we got around to asking is you came from a non-traditional veterinary background what convinced you to switch careers to go into veterinary medicine
1: so i graduated with my ba in communications and then i left and i first worked in radio and then i worked for dreamworks animation in the production department um and then and then i left there um i had kind of always wanted to be a veterinarian but i never thought i would pass college chemistry And so during this time, this shift in career, I actually had a family member who was diagnosed with cancer and that kind of made me really, really interested in medicine and science just in general. Um, And so I kind of just became a big nerd and um, I, (laughs) I decided, you know, if I was going to, I guess, you know, because I had left a full time position, it gave me the time to take classes that happen kind of in the middle of the day. You know, your big chemistry classes that, you Mm -hmm, know, there's mm -hmm. a lecture an hour and then there's a three hour lab afterwards. Um, And you can't necessarily take those at night school. So I took my first chemistry class. I said, just take it. If you fail, who cares? No one's going to see that. And then um, I ended up doing pretty well. So I took Ooh. my next one and it kind of snowballed from there. Uh, so I was like, well, <laughs> physics will stop me. I'll never pass physics. And then I did. <laughs> and then it was organic chemistry. I'll never pass organic chemistry. And then I did. And um, and then it was, well, I'll apply to veterinary school, but I won't get in. Yeah. And then it was, I'll go to the interview, but you I won't just get like, in. You and, like, and, stumbled and, your way yeah, into and then your I career. probably <laughs> And I'm next mad. thing you know,
3: your hand is through a holy cow in Davis. This is,
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. this is really
0: hilarious because, um, yeah, I mean, oh, what's her name? Sunita Williams, Sunny Williams, the astronaut. Uh, she had a really, really similar story that she was like, oh, I thought I'd give it a try. And hey, that worked out. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, you're following kind of oh, wow, you know the same kind of you know, great minds think alike type of pathway to success. That's really awesome.
1: I mean, it's really interesting um, because when I went into Davis, I was general practitioner, no question about it, all the way, small animals. And then I got to Davis and I was like, oh, there are so many different things you can do as a veterinarian, um, from public health to research to pathology to specializing in any number of fields. Um and these were things I just didn't know before coming in. And so, you know, I came from GP all the way small animal to really trying to learn as much as I can about large animals as well as small animals and then kind of deciding on a non-traditional path out of vet school as well. So Nice. Awesome. It's been
3: fun. One of your passions is education. Why don't you educate us? What are some things you wish the common folk knew about veterinarians or veterinary policy?
1: (laughs) My first one I would say, especially given the times we're in, is that be very kind to your veterinarian and your veterinary technicians. Um, They are working really countless hours and sometimes very thankless jobs. And so if that means that they have to, you know, take your animal from the car from you um, and you can't go into the appointment, just know that These people are so caring about animals and you could not be giving your animal into better hands than what is happening if you have to drop off your cat or dog to the vet office. It's important that we all kind of take the chance to appreciate them. You know, there's a lot of people in the medical field that I feel like fall under the same boat, like nurses and doctors and things like that. And sometimes I feel like veterinarians are just kind of skipped over.
3: So what other things should uh, the average person know about the behind the scenes vet life? Like, what are things that we could do so our pets would have to go to the vet less often? Or when should we be calling you up and maybe we're not?
1: Um, Definitely, you know, stay on top of your preventative medicine. So your heartworm, your flea tick for cats and dogs. Um, Heartworm is everywhere and it's transmitted by mosquitoes. So don't think that your animal is probably immune to it.
0: Do you do you ever see someone that oh man, I, I wish you'd like just come to me sooner? <laughs> are there are there things that a lot of people tend to miss yeah. in terms of a symptom? Yeah,
1: a lot of not so much miss as much as oh, it'll probably be fine the next day because animals are, especially cats, are extremely oh, good at hiding things from us, right? So it's not necessarily that the the person decided, oh, I'm just not going to bring them in. A lot of the times it's because the cat is just, looks perfectly no. fine. They're <laughs> like, I know I ate a stuff but <laughs> I'm fine. See? Ta-da! <laughs> Well,
3: thank you so much for stopping by and lending us your expertise and insight.
1: You're very so welcome. Nice
3: to, know, nice to know kind of how how they train up because there's only there's only 32 what? veterinary no. schools in the no. U.S., which is is substantially less than medical <laughs> schools.
0: So, wow, I did not realize that there were so few places where a vet could train. So, so yeah. there's
3: you know, you're you you have a big region to cover which is maybe why she <laughs> yeah. specialized, maybe why no, she but, specialized
0: uh, in large animals. Andra, seriously, congratulations. <laughs> I mean, oh, I, like, I do not know, think that I could get to a place if my, like, I was like, oh, you know, there's maybe 20 seats at every school. So, like, oh, there's a total of 600 seats in the country, you know. So. <laughs> well,
1: thank you very much. It's a, oh, yeah. It's awesome. a very special field. I feel very lucky. Part of it. Yeah.
3: So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links used in researching this episode. Thank you so much to uh, Dr. Spidiacci for joining us um our theme music is composed by rachel leisure the show is produced by me with a lot of help from dr santosh and friends and until next time as always stay safe wash your hands wear a mask Bye, and guys. for those of you who can happy travels